morning, saints. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, it's an overwhelming thing to be found this morning in Christ, just a a blessed reality, and we're so grateful for it. We praise you for your great kindness. We praise you for his humility and love for us, that he would condescend to take on human flesh and purchase our pardon, that he would be our, our Savior and our Lord that we would find ourselves this morning as your children, able to praise you and love you as we never could have before. We thank you for these things, and we pray now that as your children, you would grant us to understand your word, to embrace it, and to love it. We pray that as we are confronted with a passage of scripture that perhaps we know well, that we would read it anew, that we would apply it anew, that where we have grown lax in our obedience, we would be we would be energized out of love for you and for the Savior, that we would find him so lovely that we would want to be like him more than anything, that we would find nothing more exciting and delightful than to be like Jesus. We ask for your help in these things, and we do so in Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. This morning we're considering verses 32 through 45. For the sake of time, we're going to read just the last little snippet of it. We're going to read verses 42 through 45. So as you're finding your place there, I'd ask you to, to stand with me. And we'll read Mark 10, 42 through 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." may be seated. Think with me for a minute about your first job. Some of you may be in your first job. Some of you may have a hard time remembering your first job. It was so long ago. Those of you in that, in that situation, it's a long time ago, your first job. I, I wonder if you would 
you would ever go back to that job. Some of you may be so miserable in your current job that you would do it in a heartbeat, but um, most of us have come a long way since that first job, and we, we wouldn't ever go back to that, that first job. That tends to be the way of it. You, you, you start at the bottom and you work your way up in life. Tim Cook, who is the, the current CEO of Apple, he and actually Warren Buffett, who may be the, the most well-known investor in the world, they both started out delivering newspapers. I wonder if they would go back to that job. Michael Dell, who is the CEO of Dell Technologies, he started out as a dishwasher. I wonder if he would go back to that position in life, give up his grand state in this world, and go back to washing dishes. I highly doubt it. Most people start out life sweeping the floors and taking out the trash, digging the dishes, di- ditches. But you, you, you work your way up. You climb the ladder. You start at the bottom of the totem pole and you work your way to the top. As you go, you do less and less menial, menial tasks and you make more and more money. And that's just the way the world is. That's the way every company is. It's the way every organization is. It's the way every kingdom is. Except one grandest kingdom, which is the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, it works precisely the opposite way. The greater you become, the more mature you become, the lowlier you become in service to the point that if you could ever become the first in the kingdom, you would behave like a slave. It's remarkable. It's completely the opposite of the way that the world works. Now, why? is the kingdom of God completely opposite of the world. It's because the king of that kingdom is that way. You know, he, he started out in a position, you just can't get any higher. You can't get any higher than the Lord of glory, above all, eternally existing in perfect fellowship with the Godhead. You can't get any higher than that. Yet he did the opposite of what everyone in the world does. We, we climb to the top, he... he climbed to the bottom, you might say. He, he, he was the eternally existent son, and he condescended taking the form of a man. And not just the form of any man, but he took the form of a servant. Not just any, any servant, but he became obedient to the point of death. And not just any death, but the lowliest death, death on a cross, And having become the lowliest, the Father declared Him the greatest, the highest, and gave Him the greatest name above all so that everyone bows to Him. He was the lowliest and therefore the greatest. And Jesus says to all mankind, follow me. Follow me down this path, down this path, down this path toward greatness, toward lowlier and lowlier service, so that as you become greater and greater, as you become more and more mature, you become more and more of a servant, so that the trajectory is, is not to be served, but to serve and to give yourself up, so that the ultimate goal is to be first in the kingdom to where you behave as a slave. This middle-ish section of, of Mark has shown Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, repeatedly predicting His own suffering, death, and resurrection. 
And with each prediction, the disciples fail to understand not only the prediction itself, but what it means for their trajectory in life. And so with each misunderstanding, Jesus has taken the opportunity to teach them about the nature of discipleship. So in this passage, beginning not in verse 42, where we began just a moment ago, but in verse 32, Jesus, Jesus gives this third iteration of, of this pattern. And the message is essentially the same as the first two. Jesus giving of His life in service to others is to serve as the blueprint for those who would be His disciples. We don't climb to greatness, but we descend to greatness in the service of others. And we do that because that is what Jesus has done. In this passage, there are really two grand ideas, and they both answer the question, what is the significance of the passion of Jesus Christ for His disciples? Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer and die. What is the significance of that for us? The passage gives us two answers. And so we've got two main points this morning. The first actually undergirds the second. The first answer is that Jesus died and rose to save us from sin. He died and rose to save us from sin. So Mark, Mark begins the passage in, in verse 32. Let's, let's look there, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who, who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to them. So, so Jesus is, is, is leading this pack on the way to Jerusalem. Some are, some are amazed, some are afraid. Likely they're both, both groups, the, the, the afraid and the amazed, they, they are so because they, they, have, they have heard Jesus say what is going to happen there. They're amazed because he is going, He's determined to go there. And they're afraid because He's determined to go there. In spite of what they know is going to happen to Him, what He has said repeatedly is going to happen to them. And so He takes the twelve aside again and tells them what's going to happen to them. Look at verse 33. He says to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him. And after three days, He will rise. Now, of the three predictions that we've seen, one in chapter 8, one in chapter 9, and now chapter 10, this one is the most detailed. And we'll see as we progress later in Mark that what we see here in verses 33 and 34, this is exactly what happens to Jesus. Now, one unique feature of this prediction compared to the prior two is that it closes with Jesus explaining what this is going to accomplish. When we get to verse 45, He tells us why He's doing this. Someone reading Mark for the first time with no real knowledge of the good news might be able to piece together a rough idea of why Jesus is so determined to go to Jerusalem to die. But most likely, a person reading this for the first time, they would only be filled with questions. If Jesus knows this is going to happen to him in Jerusalem, why is he going? Not only why is he going, but why is he so determined to go? We finally find out why at the end of this passage. And we've, we've, we've just 
read it a moment ago. And verse 45 serves like a bookend on this passage. What the, 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 the first bookend, of course, is the beginning of the passage. Verse 45 is like the second bookend on the end of the passage. And they set us up to understand everything in the middle. Now, I'd like to go ahead and look again at verse 45 together. Why is Jesus so determined to go to Jerusalem? Verse 45 tells us, tells us what this accomplishes. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'd like to focus just on a couple of words in that verse. Ransom and for. Ransom and for. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Both of those words convey the concept of substitution. A ransom is a payment that's given in exchange for those who have forfeited their freedom. Now, slavery in biblical times was not at all like slavery in early America. Early American slavery is something that the Bible would call man-stealing. And if you, if you read the Old Testament, you'll find that man-stealing was punishable by death. But slavery in the ancient Near East was, was completely different. It was generally temporary, and it came about as a person forfeited their freedom in order to pay a debt and, or in order to, to pay for a crime that they had committed. And one could receive their freedom back by paying a ransom. A ransom would, would pay their debt. It would, it would give them their freedom back. So that's the word ransom. Underneath the word for is a Greek word that's not the typical word for the word for. The typical sense of this word underneath for means instead of or, or in place of. In other words, it's that idea of substitution. And we find that word in the Greek version of the Old Testament back in Genesis 22.13 where Abraham offered a ram instead of his son. That, it's that little word for. He offered a ram for his son, instead of his son, as a substitute for his son. That same little word for for is used in Luke 11, 11, when Jesus says that if, if a son asks his father for a fish, his, fir, his, his father would never give him a snake for a fish, a, a snake instead of a fish. So... This word for speaks of substitution. He gave his life as a ransom instead, in the stead of many. And so that's the significance of Jesus' impending death in Jerusalem. Jesus gave his life as a ransom, as a payment, in the stead of sinners to purchase their freedom. And what that implies is that sinners are slaves. They are those who have forfeited their freedom, we might say, on account of a crime. And the the, the first of those crimes, uh, which the Bible would call sin, was committed in, in the Garden of Eden. By that sin, Adam became a slave of sin. And that, that slavery to sin, it was passed down to all of us. We've all sinned from our very first breath. The, the impulse to rebel against God took root at our very conception As fallen human beings, we are slaves to sin. We can do nothing else. And there's a penalty for that sin. The penalty for sin is death, which is both temporal and eternal separation from God. 
Our sin separates us from God in this life, and then after we die, it separates us from Him eternally as we receive the wrath that is rightly due for our rebellion against our holy Creator God. So just like the slaves of antiquity in in the ancient Near East, in Adam, we forfeited our freedom, and we had no means to free ourselves. But the the great news is, is that even though God is a just God and He demands a full payment for sin. God is at the same time a loving and merciful God, and so He made a way for our ransom to be paid. Though we could not pay it, He would pay it by sending His Son. This Son who started at the top and descended to the bottom, that He might become, in a sense, the slave of all. Christ alone was worthy and capable of ransoming others by His own life and death. So deep is the love of the Father that He sent the Son to do that. And so deep is the love of the Son that He set His face toward Jerusalem, determined to accomplish that mission, and He did. Just as He said here in Mark chapter 10, He was delivered over to men. He was condemned. He was mocked. Men spit on him. He was flogged. He was killed. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And we're finding in Mark that all those who repent, that is, who turn away from their sin and follow Christ in faith, they enjoy the eternal blessings of his death and resurrection. This week at the, at the funeral for Michael Roschuk, who is Pastor Dan's son-in-law, he's Mike and, and Julie Seawalk's brother-in-law, we, we, sang, we sang to him, it is well, it is well with my soul. Why is it well? That, that song points to substitution, the substitution of Christ as the ground for the well-being of the believer's soul. And that, that hymn contains what may be one of the greatest stanzas in all Christian hymnody. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Why is it well with our souls in good times and in bad? Why are we saved from the wrath to come? Because He took our sin, not in part, but in whole, upon Himself. And He exhausted the wrath of God for that sin on the cross so that there is no more wrath left for us. Our debt has been paid. We have been completely and fully ransomed, no longer slaves. We live as free from sin and death. In Mark 10, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He is determined to go and be our substitute that He might ransom us from slavery to sin that we might live forevermore. What is the significance of Christ's 
passion for us, his, his death, his resurrection. What is the significance of that for us? The first answer of this text is that we are saved from sin. We are ransomed from slavery. That is the message of the bookends of this text. The first, the, the prediction, and then verse 45. The bookends teach us that. Now, the, the middle of, of, of the passage gives us actually the main point. And it prevents us from misunderstanding something. Does our, our, our freedom from slavery to sin, does that mean that slavery, the, the, the forfeiting of our freedom in every sense, is a thing of the past? No. Because there is a second significance of Christ's passion, and it is directly related to the first. The teaching that we've just seen, again, it frames the teaching in the middle of the passage, the main thrust of the passage, which is that because we are following Christ as His disciples, His suffering and service are the model for us. So what is the significance of Christ's passion for our lives? The second answer to that question is that Jesus died and rose to set us an example. Jesus died and rose to set us an example. Now, there are, there are liberal theologians out there who disagree with the concept of substitution that we have just considered together. And in their minds, all that Jesus accomplished in His life and death was to give us an example, an example of sacrificial service. They are not reading the Bible very closely. Now, there are conservative theologians who get upset at those liberals, and so they do a pendulum swing thing, and they don't like to hear about Christ setting an example. And so for them, all that Christ accomplished in His life and death was substitution, not an example. I would say that they also are not reading the Bible very closely. We need to read the Bible closely. Jesus has just for the third time predicted His sacrificial suffering. And what's the very next detail in the narrative? Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Him and said to Him, Teacher, we want You to do for us whatever we ask of You. Now, I find that remarkable. Their statement seems somewhat backward, does it not? I mean, Jesus has just told them for the third time that He is a future Risen from the dead king. Have there been that many of those in history? It's going to be a unique thing. And yet they're coming to him and they're saying, we want you to do anything that we say. For them, all that was accomplished in, in, in Jesus' life and death is, is just going to be, it's going to set a new trajectory for them that's going to be completely different than what Jesus did. It might be more appropriate for them to have said, in light of what Jesus has said, Lord, we'll do whatever you say. But rather they say, Lord, we want you to do whatever we say. But listen, more remarkable than what, we, what they said, it's how Jesus responds. Verse 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And, and look, this is not Jesus setting them up. It is not. This is Jesus modeling kingdom greatness for them. 
just as He has been teaching them and as He will continue to teach them. The great are servants. The first are slaves. This is not a one-off thing. Jesus is going to ask this same question of somebody later in the chapter. Bartimaeus, the blind slave, later in chapter 10, he's, he's crying out to Jesus for mercy. In verse 51, Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? This is greatness in the kingdom. And, and it, we might think that it's subtle, but it's right here in the middle of the passage. And it highlights the point that Jesus' service is a model for the disciples. They're saying, we want you to do whatever we say. And he's saying, sure. Verse 37, they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And, you know, you know, once again, they've missed the import of Christ's suffering for their lives, just as they were arguing about who among them was the greatest back in chapter 9, just after his second prediction of his, of his passion. Here, James and John, they're asking for the traditional seats of honor in Jesus' kingdom. It, it, it appears that they've accepted now, in some sense, what Jesus has said about His impending death and resurrection, and now they're looking forward to that earthly kingdom that, that He is going to rule post-resurrection. So they've got the post-resurrection on their mind, and in their heads, Jesus is he, He's going to suffer and serve, and then there's going to be some serious earthly rewards to enjoy. So they need to nail down positions of prominence now. To get in on the ground floor. And this is how the earthly mind works. Right? This is how our earthly minds work. You posture and maneuver to secure the positions of highest power and pay and pleasure. What can I do to get the best place for me? What can I do to get higher than others? And the, Lord, the Lord's response is fascinating. Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The cup that Jesus drinks, the baptized with, with, baptism with which He is baptized, what, what is He talking about? Luke chapter 12, verse 50 there Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now that is after his baptism by John. So he's not talking about his literal baptism by John. He's take, talking about something else. If we continue to, to consult the Scriptures, we find that, that water frequently in the Scriptures picture judgment. You might think of, of Noah's flood as a picture of the judgment of, of God. God's wrath was poured out on humanity, all of humanity in the flood. In fact, in 1 Peter 3, the apostle makes that, that very analogy. He compares the flood, God's wrath, to baptism. Our baptism, in a sense, pictures our being brought safely through the floodwaters of God's wrath in Christ. Similarly, the cup is a reference to, to judgment and suffering. Remember in, in Matthew chapter 26, as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, He prays to the Father, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. And there are references elsewhere, particularly in Revelation, to the cup as, as a, a refer, reference to, 
to God's wrath. So the cup, the baptism, they're likely references to Jesus' coming suffering on the cross. Now, think, about, think again about, about what the sons of Zebedee have, have requested. They want to sit, one at his right hand and one on his left. One on his right hand, one on his left. Those words are used one other place, only one other place in Mark. Think about that for a second. One on his right hand, one on his left. Anything come to mind? Mark 15, 27. Mark 15, 27 reads this way. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. John and James, they want the places of prominence at Jesus' right and on his left. Truly, they don't know what they're asking for. Jesus' right hand and his left are places of suffering. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? They don't know what they're asking for. Verse 39, and they said to him, we're able. Now, that, 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 that reminds me, those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, this may ring a bell to you too. It makes me think of Joshua 24. Um, I don't have time to explain that, but just write it down. Read Joshua 24 this afternoon and you'll see the similarities. They don't know what they're signing up for. They are, they are all gusto and confidence and shouldn't be. Look at the rest of verse 39. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. You will drink the cup that I drink. You will be baptized with my baptism. Now, if those are references to suffering and judgment, what should we make of that? Does, does the believer suffer with Christ? I don't know how you can avoid that if you're a student of, of the New Testament. We certainly don't suffer wrath in the sense that we would had we been outside of Christ. But we do suffer in following Christ. Our previous passage in Mark chapter 10 indicates that this is actually part of following Jesus. The, the passage that we looked at last week says that when we follow Jesus and we're giving up mother and father and sister and brother, we're gaining all of this stuff. We're gaining mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers in houses along with persecutions. Do you remember that? This is, this is called truth in advertising. Jesus is not hiding anything from those who follow Him. And Jesus is right about James and John. If we were to flip over to Acts chapter 12, we would find Luke recording that James was killed by Herod with the sword. And while tradition holds that John was the lone disciple not to lose his life for the gospel, he didn't exactly get off easy. He was boiled in oil and then exiled on Patmos. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1 and Philippians 3 about his sharing abundantly in Christ's sufferings. And he, he wrote in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He called Timothy to do this. You, you join in the sufferings of, of Christ. So James and John here, they're promised suffering, but the places of highest prominence were not Jesus to give, according to the Lord those may have been prepared for others. But you see how Jesus, is, his, he is not setting 
one trajectory for himself and another trajectory for his disciples. The disciples follow the master. The master suffers, the disciple follows the example. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, if, if we're believing the best, we, 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 might, we might think that the, the other ten, they hear, they hear James and John, and they're just indignant because, you know, guys, how could you so badly miss Jesus' point of all this teaching about discipleship and, and start to posture up like this? But I think the context would indicate that they're probably indignant because they wanted those places of prominence. And we, we ought not cast stones, right? Because we're naturally just like them. In fact, we, we, we are naturally more like the twelve. We are naturally more like the Pharisees and the scribes than we are like Jesus. And, and that's why we, we so desperately need three of these predictions and teachings on discipleship. Just like the original 12, we, we need this over and over, and we need to give ourselves over to with great desire and endurance and energy to following Jesus. So, all the disciples have their eyes on the sweet seats in, in the kingdom, and... You know, if we are amazing in our ability to miss the point, Jesus is so much more amazing in His patience. It is so remarkable because He's gone over this again and again in detail. And yet, what a wonderful thing that He's so long-suffering because in verse 42, He's going to do it again. And there doesn't seem to be a hint of exasperation. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now, precisely, I mean, that, that, you go to any organization in the world, and the inferiors in that organization and the superiors in that organization, they're not going to talk to each other the way Jesus and James and John have talked to each other in this, these previous verses. Underlings don't say to bosses, I want you to do whatever I say, only to hear, sure, whatever you want. I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried that at work, but you'll likely get an education, right? It's not exactly how we do things around here. You climb the ladder of success for a reason in this world. The work at the top is more prestigious. It's less menial. The position is more honorable. The pay is better. There's more authority, which, frankly, can be used to your benefit. You climb so that you don't have to do the things that you did at the bottom. You don't want to have to be the servant. You want to be the served. That's the way of the world. But we must be careful not to bring the way of the world into the Christian church into the Christian home, into the Christian life. Consider the Christian man who comes home to his family at the end of the day with the attitude that says, I gave it the office. I'm the breadwinner, I'm the husband, I'm the father, I'm the authority, 
there are certain things I don't do around here. I don't do dishes. I don't change diapers. I don't do this. I don't do this. I don't. It's my time to rest. He has come home to be served and not to serve. I think that's why the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus is the example for the Christian. The world is not the example for you, Christian. Jesus served. So, husband, serve. Jesus poured himself out for his bride. So, husband, pour yourself out. Strive to outserve your bride. Similarly, Paul writes in Ephesians 6, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You think your work is done when you get home? It is only beginning. If you're a follower of Christ. Consider also the person of authority in any capacity. The, 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 the Christian supervisor in the workplace. The Christian husband. The Christian parent. The Christian whatever. Any Christian in authority who uses that authority to require everyone around them to accommodate their sin. Look, this is just the way I am, so I'm going to need you to not do this around me, to not do that around me, to make sure you're this way, to make sure you're that way, so that I don't have to do this or that. They do that. They use their authority to move others to accommodate their sin rather than killing their own sin and pursuing righteousness as a service to everyone around them. They have come to be served rather than to serve. Consider the person who comes to church week after week, has a few conversations, worships, and leaves. And that's the totality of their involvement with the body of Christ for that week. They serve no one formally or informally at all. They have come to be served and not to serve. Just like the Gentiles that Jesus is talking about here. They seek the position where they are served and where they are not serving. And and Jesus' point here is, what what, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, that's what they do. That's, That's not what we do. That's not what the kingdom does. Look at verse 43. He says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. The kingdom of God works differently than the kingdom of the world. Greatness is in service, and prominence is in lowliness. And look at how he makes the point here by an escalation in in the, the terminology that he uses. He said, whoever would be great, whoever would be great must be your servant. Whoever would be first must be slave of all. So the greater, the greater you are, the lower you are. Great is great, but it isn't first. And being a servant is lowly, but it isn't being a slave. In other words, the greater you are in the kingdom, the lower you will be in your service, so that if you are the first in the kingdom, you are behaving like a slave. And consider the irony here then. The kingdom irony. We talked already 
about, about the next verse here in verse 45, what it means for Christ to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave himself up. He forfeited his freedom so that we might no longer be slaves, no longer be slaves to sin. But in following Christ, we become servants. We become slaves to one another. And we, we love the gospel, right? And rightfully so. Je- Jesus died and rose to save us from our sins. The question to consider is, do we love discipleship? That Jesus died and rose to set us an example, to, to, to pave a trail that we should follow in His footsteps. Some modern professing believers' approach to discipleship, their mindset is that Jesus died and rose to save us from suffering and service. We we need to be very clear about this. Jesus absolutely did not die to save us from suffering and service. He saved us from sin and death, but His death and resurrection point directly toward our following Him in suffering and service. Look again at verse 45, now within the flow of the passage. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Do you see now how that verse is functioning in the the flow of the passage? It's not an isolated statement about the atonement. The purpose of this verse in the whole passage is is to show what Christ did and to show that that's why Christians do what they do could say that we're freed from slavery to sin so that we might be slaves to Christ and one another. And some professing Christians just aren't down for that. They love half the story. They love the the lowly suffering Jesus who delivers sinners from sin, not the lowly suffering Jesus who says, follow me and do what I do. And in a few minutes, as, as is our custom, we're going to have a, a few moments of silence. And, and in, in that time, I, I, I think, obviously, we should all spend a few minutes considering these things and, and asking ourselves, where, where in my life, where, where in your life, are we reflecting the attitude of the Gentiles, of, of the world, rather than an attitude of, of, of the Savior? Where, where are we saying... In, in any portion of our lives, I've come to be served rather than to serve. Now, you may be really wrestling right now. And in all honesty, you, you, you may be thinking, I, I really don't want to be a servant. I don't, I don't want to be a slave. And if you would admit that to yourself right now, I commend you for that honesty. You, 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 you like doing what you're doing. You like looking out for you. You like serving you. But, but it, really, it, it is out of compassion for you that, that, I, that I say this. In, in holding on to your freedom, in a sense, you're forfeiting joy. Pastor Rick read from John 15 earlier this morning. I'm sorry, John 13. Pastor Jason read from John 15 earlier today. And both of those passages point towards something. 
and that is that when Jesus is calling us to follow him, he is not robbing us of joy. He's leading us to joy. He's leading us to blessing. John chapter 13 is is Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. The last verse that Pastor Rick read said, if you believe these things, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You're blessed if you do them. There are a couple of different Greek words for blessed. That one has the connotation of happy. You're happy. You're happy if you do what I've done and you're washing your brothers and sisters' feet. And in John chapter 15, that Pastor Jason read for us, he said, these commandments that I've given to you, I've given to you that you may have my joy. Listen, not, not bottom shelf joy, Christ's level joy, that your joy may be complete. I've, I've given you these commandments, not as a kill joy, but as a, as a Christ level giving joy. And I, I, I would encourage you to think about the, the people around you who tend to serve as a way of life. I, I think of, of, I, I think of uh, probably a dozen people in this, this church who, who serve like crazy. We've got people in this church who serve so much, not, and I'm not talking about just formally. They do serve formally, but they also serve informally. And what I mean by informally is they're, they're, they're meeting with people to read the Bible. And when people get sick, they're taking them meals. And they're texting people when they know that they're down and, and sending, them, sending them Bible verses, encouraging them. They're serving informally along with the formal things like, like putting together the PowerPoint that we, that we don't even think about as we're, re, as we're singing songs on Sunday mornings. There's people that are serving so much formally and informally, I don't even know how they have time to brush their teeth. You would think that with all that serving, they would just be miserable, Right? They're the most joyful people here. There must be something to the words that Jesus said in John 13 and John 15. Imagine that. The Bible is true. Jesus gave us these commandments that we might have His joy and that our joy might be complete. Why don't we follow Him? Why Why don't we follow Him along with these brothers and sisters and descend to greatness, descend to service and joy and pursue those positions of greatest prominence, slaves of all. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that every, every word that you have uttered proves true. What a magnificent thing. We thank you that these words have been written down for our benefit and that we do benefit from them Sunday after Sunday. And as we strive to apply them, we find them worked out in our everyday lives. And we, we ask, Father, that as we can continue to consider these things, that, that we would find it to be true once again, that your word holds true. And in these coming moments, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, 
grant us to see where, where we, we need to pursue true greatness, which is service to others. lives of slaves to others. Where do we need to pursue that, Father? Would you speak to us? Would you bless us in that way? And, and in that way, lead us to Christ-likeness and joy. We ask in his name.